This is the What Now Podcast. What compliments do you receive? What things do people say to you frequently that you find yourself dismissing before it's even out of that person's mouth? And sometimes we dismiss it because we're in this place that we want to be modest or humble. Um, But sometimes we dismiss it because we don't actually value it. It's so easy for us. It's so reflexive. We think that couldn't possibly be valuable. And yet those are some things that you do really well that will help point you in the direction of your passion. This is the What Now podcast where we discuss the culture and beliefs in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in an honest and faithful way in an effort to encourage, uplift, and inspire. I am Mary Alice Hatch, your host. Join me as I speak with Whitney Johnson, author of Disrupt Yourself, where she shares tips for how to identify passions and interests that fill our lives with renewed purpose and meaning, and how to find opportunities that allow us to manifest our true potential. Today, I'm here with Whitney Johnson. Welcome. Thank you, Mary Alice. I'm delighted to be here. I'm happy to have you. I'm loving the topic we're going to talk about today. But before we get started, would you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself so listeners can get to know you better? Yes, absolutely. So I live in Lexington, Virginia, though I did grow up in San Jose, California. Um, I'm married. We have two children. And um, from a career perspective, I uh, started a company called Disruption Advisors, where we help accelerate the growth of people so that they can grow as fast as a company is growing and um, do some work around that with coaching and offsites, et cetera. And it is very, very fun to help people disrupt themselves, which is what we do every single day. And that's what we're going to be talking about today on the podcast. I'm just starting this series about women in the second act of life. And so you're the first interview of this series that I'm doing. So I'm glad you're here, Whitney. (laughs) And you're going to help us all disrupt our lives (laughs) in good ways. Yes, exactly. In good ways and help us find kind of that renewed purpose and direction. I mean, many women entering midlife are wondering what now? They're not sure what to do with this second act of life. And many have been home raising their kids for the past 20 to 30 years. And they're really kind of unsure how to navigate the transition. So, and as a coach and disruptive strategy, you know, what advice would you give these women who are stuck in this rut and they're just not sure how to begin their quest for this renewed midlife purpose? Mm. Mm. Well, this is a question that I absolutely love because um, when we're in this place of not knowing what's next, it means there's an opportunity to change and grow. And and that's the work that we do. I, I guess I'll, just a little bit of background. Um, I had the wonderful privilege of working with Clayton Christensen. And some people are going to remember him from having written Everyday Missionaries, but he's most well-known for his work around disruptive innovation. He wrote a book called The Innovator's Dilemma and talked about this theory of disruption, which says this silly little thing can take over the world. And he looked at it in the context of products and services and companies and countries. But when I was working with him, I had this insight that disruption wasn't just about products and services. It was also about people that we could, in fact, disrupt ourselves and and we needed to disrupt ourselves in order to move forward. And so as I think about this place of, of having um, your children are growing up and becoming empty nesters and this place of, okay, what do I do next? 
it's an opportunity. And in fact, it's time to disrupt yourself. And if you think about disruption at its base, it's actually this opportunity of what we have in the gospel, which is to move forward, to, to let go of our old self in order to walk into our new self. So what would I say? I would say that this is exactly where you're supposed to be at this point in your life. Um, we have another framework that we talk about very briefly. It's called the S-curve, and it helps you understand what growth looks and feels like. And when you start something new, you're at the launch point of a curve, and it feels awkward and uncomfortable, and you feel like an imposter and unsure and impatient. All those emotions that you had, like when you started the first day of school. And what I would say is this is absolutely normal that you feel this way. Just like it was normal that you felt this way when you got married, it's normal that you felt this way when you had your first child. It is now normal to feel like you are starting over because in fact you are. And so as you think about this idea of the S-curve, it helps normalize this experience as you are disrupting yourself to be um, to move into the next phase or the, 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 yeah, the next end and second stage of your life, which is a very important developmental stage for, for you as a human being. It's true. I mean, and I think that I like that you're normalizing it because a lot of people are worried that they are kind of panicking. (laughs) And we're also going through menopause at this stage of our life. So yes, all, all the hormonal stuff that happens and Yeah, I I think there is that panic that takes place. And there's this wonderful work by um, Arthur C. Brooks. And I'm happy to, I interviewed him on on my podcast on Disrupt Yourself, and we can put it into the show notes. But he talks about the second curve. So there's the first curve and the second curve. And for those going into the second stage of life, it is very much the second curve. Um, If you don't mind, I would love to share with you a metaphor that I came up with that I think certainly helps me think about this. It's about the ship in the harbor. Yes, please. Okay. So I, um, I think a lot about how, um, as women, as mothers and, um, for the first stage of our life, if we, if we felt called to be a mother, which many of your, um, listeners I think is the case is that we learned how to become a harbor. We learned how to make places safe for people. We learned how to shelter those people around us. And and those are generally very much feminine characteristics and very, very important. Um, but then the question is, is how do we become a ship? Because if we know how to become a ship, then we can actually become a better harbor. And so becoming a harbor is the feminine characteristics and the becoming a ship is those masculine characteristics. And according to Jungian psychology, we need to have both in order to become a, a full human. And what I find interesting is that within our faith tradition, our men learn how to become a ship because they go out into the workplace. Um, they also learn how to be a harbor because they come, become fathers and they, they, they hold the priesthood and they give priesthood blessings, all those things that teach them how to nurture. So they're developing the masculine and the feminine. So part of the, the task for women is in the second part of life is to learn how to be a ship and to have that experience of of taking on things that you haven't done before that are going to be separate from anyone else, but you you developing and growing um, in, in a new way as a human being. And what I love is when I think about our Savior, Jesus Christ, he knew how to be a harbor in a ship because what did he do? He was able to chase away the money changers, but at the same time, he could wipe away our tears. And so he's our role model when it comes to truly growing up, whether we're a man or a woman. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's beautifully said. I like how you liken that to Christ and those characteristics. It's true. You know, he could, you know, chase out the money chaser, but he could also offer peace and healing to people. Mm -hmm. Beautifully said. So how do women identify their own passions and interests when so much of their life has been dedicated to their families and they're Mm. not sure what their passions are anymore? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. And I, I would say, I think that you have a better sense of what they are than you think you do. Um, but here are some, some suggestions. Um, I would say, first of all, just start really paying attention to what makes you feel strong. Uh, Marcus Buckingham said that, um, so our, our strengths clamor for our attention in the most basic way because using them makes us feel strong. We feel effective. We feel successful. And so start tracking. What are the things that I'm doing in the course of my day that really make me feel strong? Um, that's one, one clue that you're going to get. Another one is to think about what exasperates you. You know, if you find yourself saying, this is just common sense, everybody knows how to plan the perfect party. So I have this wonderful friend, her name is Kathleen Hunter Peterson. And, um, she is so good at planning parties, so good at planning events. It's just so natural for her. And I look at her like, wow, how, how do you even think about doing that? And yet for her, she's like, it's just common sense. Of course you can plan a party. And so what are those things? It doesn't exasperate her, but for her, it does feel like it's common sense. And then the third thing I would think about is what compliments do you receive? What things do people say to you frequently that you find yourself dismissing before it's even out of that person's mouth. And sometimes we dismiss it because we're in this place that we want to be modest or humble. Um, But sometimes we dismiss it because we don't actually value it. It's so easy for us. It's so reflexive. We think that couldn't possibly be valuable. And yet those are some things that you do really well that will help point you in the direction of your passions. And then the fourth thing I I will say um, is look at, reread your patriarchal blessing. There are all sorts of clues in there about what some of your strengths are, what some of your passions are, and those are going to give you some clues. Now, the next thing I would do, unless you want to make some comments before I continue. No, I love this. Keep going. Okay. So, um, like I said, I think you have a better sense than the, than you think you do, but, um, you know, you're, like I said, you're at the launch point of a new curve, and this is a place of exploration. You've landed here. You don't know, you know, you don't know what you want to do here. It's like being on a desert island and trying to figure out what to do next. And, and so what I would encourage people to do and is to start dating dreams. And so Mary Alice, you may remember I interviewed you for my book, Dare Dream Do, like 10 years ago or 12 yes. years ago. Yeah. And um, one of the things I talked about in this book was just to date dreams. And and when I say date a dream, I mean, think about when you were dating, like you would maybe go on a blind date, you would go on a speed date, like you don't have to stay with it. And this is, you know, you're, you're gonna, you're not going to date men, but you can date dreams. And so maybe you think I might want to run a marathon or learn how to paint or write a book or go back to school or start a business or run for public office or use my voice for good. Like you can have all sorts of dreams that you want to date and write them down when those ideas come into your head. We hear President Nelson talk about revelation. When you get these really sometimes odd, random ideas, write those down because they might be revelation. In fact, they very well could be. But then figure out how do I 
update this for five minutes. Like, I want to run a marathon. Well, go out and run for five minutes if you don't run at all and be like, did I enjoy that or not? I did. Maybe I'll run for five minutes tomorrow. Just be in this place of playfulness, of dating, you know, 20, 40, 50 dreams. And you'll find that if you will speed date them, you'll quickly start to narrow down and say, you know, I really enjoyed drawing when I was a little girl. I think I, I, I want to take a class in watercolor or, you know, I really, I have this business mind and I have this business idea. I think I want to explore that. Um, or, you know, et cetera, I want to write a book. So I would, I would pick some dreams. I would make a list, make it 50, find ways to speed date those for five minutes and then just start winning, winnowing them down. And you'll very quickly start to find yourself exploring lots of different things and knowing that you don't have to marry them. You just have to date them. Mm-hmm. No, I like that idea. I actually really like the thought of just reflecting back on things you liked even as a child. Absolutely. And they might show up differently. And so actually, I want to throw this to you, Mary Alice, because I remember when I interviewed you for Dare Dream Do, you talked about some things that you liked to do as a little girl that you set aside, but then it came back. Do you want to share it? Sure. Yeah, no, I liked interior design. I remember as like a little girl when my parents would go out of town, I like repainted my furniture and put new hardware on it. (laughs) I was like 12. (laughs) And then I'd like redo my room. And and as I got older, I was reflecting on that and thinking, you know, when I had two children, I, I did go back and get my master's in design. And I just thought if I watch another episode of Barney, I'm gonna lose my mind. So I just thought, okay, I'm going to do this. And this is something I loved as a kid. I'm going to try this out. And I ended up really loving it and going back to school for it and working in it here and there. And I really found a lot of fulfillment in that. But, you know, I'm kind of in this phase too. I've had the podcast for four years. I love it. I also want to bridge to other things and feel like I'm continuing to grow and develop. And I think as members of the church, we really do feel like we need to constantly be progressing, I think, because of the knowledge that we have. Mm-hmm. You know what? You just gave me another thought too, Mary Alice, of, uh, of other clues is to look at, you know, we have church callings our whole life. Like, which church callings did you absolutely love? And so I'll give, I'll give two examples from me, and then I'd love to hear a couple of examples from, from you. So one church calling that I loved was teaching gospel doctrine. I loved being able to teach. And of course, I loved teaching Relief Society because that's the best calling in the church. But another calling that I loved, which was a little bit random, um, and that is that I remember um, when our children were really, really little. Actually, this is a great story. So our children are really little and my husband's been called, we're living in Manhattan. My husband's been called to be the bishop of a singles ward. And I've got a baby. So I'm kind of like, do I go to the singles ward? Do I go to, you know, my ward? And so I was feeling kind of isolated. And so um, our member of our bishopric came to me and said, okay, we want to extend you this calling. And and they said, we want you to do, I think it was indexing for genealogy. And I went back to him and I said, I'm so grateful. I feel like you were inspired to give me a calling, but I don't feel like this is the right calling <laughs> because I'm already feeling isolated and this will make me feel even more isolated. I said, can you pray about it? So they came back to me and they said, hey, we're going to give you two options. You can either be a Relief Society teacher and all I wanted to say yes, absolutely. Or you can be the spotlight coordinator. And part of me is like, what's that? Like, that's a made up calling. But I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, but you know what? I felt inspired to take it. 
And you know how much joy that brought me? Because what I did, if you think about it, it's a precursor to interviewing people. I would go meet with a woman. I would spend an hour with her. I would interview her. And then I would come back and talk about her to the rest of the Relief Society and then take some theme from her life and generalize it to us or universalize the theme. That was one of my favorite callings. Well, you can see in that favorite calling, this is 20 years ago, very much the seeds of my wanting to and being interested in being able to interview people and having people share their stories. So I'm curious from you, like what's been one of your favorite callings? So that's interesting. Um, well, release society president, I just got released. I did that for four years. I got released in June. But I I like that. And it's almost like what you're talking about with the spotlight, like you're meeting people, you're getting to know their story, you're getting to know them, what brought them to San Clemente, you know, why are they here? Tell me about your kids. It's that same process. It's almost like a little interview, honestly. And then you're just constantly serving people. Yeah. I think. Well, and I, as I listen to you talk and, and hearing you, you know, share how you want to, to continue to do good in the world. I mean, what is Relief Society if it's not doing good in the world? And so having that experience of organizing women to give relief, like that, that impulse and, and that practice of doing that, it makes complete sense to me that you want to continue to do that, even having been released from your calling. Yeah, and I have to actually speak to that for a second. For those of you out there who have callings you've been released from and you feel sad about it, I have to say I was like crying the whole drive home after I got <laughs> released. And for like three months, I was like in a funk about it. It was awful. Like you just have so much purpose and meaning and direction. And you just love, you You grow to love these people. And then you're kind of let go to pasture and you're wondering like, how do I interact with these people, you know, like I still love them and care about them, but there's a new person here, mm. you know, taking over this. And that was a really hard transition for me. So, and, and that's what kind of gave me a lot more free time to be thinking about, okay, how am I disrupting myself now? <laughs> <laughs> what am I going to do with all this which, free time? <laughs> which led to this conversation that we're having right now. And I, you know, I love that you shared that Mary Alice, because I think that we don't talk enough in the church about the loss that we feel when we're released from a calling. I think there is a relief, but I, I remember, um, I remember when my husband was released as a bishop, like there was a, you could see the mantle leave. Like, and I remember when my son came home from his mission, you could see the mantle leave and, and there is, and at what you just described a real loss and, I, I think it would be good if we would allow each other to just grieve and mourn the loss that we feel at being released. Like you want to be gracious and allow the next person to move into that role, but also to honor the, the sadness that you feel for not getting to hold that anymore. Mm -hmm. It is true. And I feel like there's that same morning when our children leave. Mm -hmm. So much of our purpose is mm -hmm. held in their upbringing creating, you know, amazing adults who can do something good for the world and just turning them loose. And then you feel like a part of you is gone. Yeah. It, it's a weird, it's a weird feeling. Yeah. 
but and oh, knowing how to allow them to spread their wings too, right? You want mm-hmm. them to thrive. You want them to be totally independent without you. And that can be hard too, because you want them in some way to be a little <laughs> dependent on you, like call me every now and then. <laughs> There's a deep ambivalence, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. Like really, I am still part of your life. <laughs> So, um, but yeah, I think with a lot of women too, especially because there are a lot of women who do work and, and so they still have opportunities once their kids leave, but there's a lot of women in our church culture who don't, and they really have been home with their children. And so they do feel this loss and they, they don't have a network either. I mean, I think they would like to go back to work, Mm -hmm. but they're not sure what to draw from. I mean, they don't really have a network. What do they do? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, so I I kind of had an opposite experience where, you know, I had been working and then um and then started to have children. I had started having children in my 30s. And I remember feeling like I have no idea how to be a mother. Like I felt so out of my depth. I felt so inept. I'm like, I can kind of do this work thing, but being a mother, I don't know what I'm doing. And at the same time, I would have conversations with women who were like being mothers and doing it really, really well. And yet they were trying to figure out what else they might be doing and, you know, sort of preparing for when their children did leave. And they were, I would be like, well, what are some things that you want to do? And they would like, I don't know what I want to do. And so which meant that when they children actually did leave, they weren't really going to know what they wanted to do. And I did find myself in some respects, wanting to, you know, when I had written that book, Dare Dream Do, it was it was to encourage women to dream, but it also was an, an homage or a tribute to the women who were teaching me how to, you know, fulfill the dream of, of being a mother. Now, what I would say, though, around this of like, well, what about the network? Um, I would argue that um, we as women have a much broader network than we think we do. Um, And certainly in the church, we have a very broad network. Now, the thing that is the challenge, and this goes to some work that was done by Sally Helgeson, and we can include a link to the interview in the show notes, is that women have a network, but we are very reluctant to uh, leverage our network in order to get anything done that might feel like it is about us. And so it's not so much the lack of the network, it's the ability or willingness to reach out to other women or other men that we know and say, hey, I'm trying to do X, Y, or Z. Can you help me think through this? Can you um, help me you know, introduce me to someone who could help me figure this out, et cetera. So it's, we have more of a network than we think we do. Um, Number one. Number two, I would say it's a willingness to tap into that network, knowing that we're going to be reluctant because we're socialized as women that we're not being feminine unless we're giving something to someone else, not when we're asking for something. And then the third thing I would say is, um, is when we're working, sometimes it feels uncomfortable asking men that we know in the church because that's not the nature of how we've worked together. But I do find that it can be helpful if we go to the men in the church in our lives and say, you know, I'm trying to figure out this business. 
um, I could really use your support. And I, this is really unusual because that's not what women usually ask for and kind of call it out, but then ask for the help and the support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you're right on that. There's something that stood out to me in what you just said about women being reluctant to ask for connections because then it feels almost self-interested and mm-hmm. greedy, like, oh, you know, it's all about me. But really, most of the time we're using those connections to better ourselves and better others. So that's that's a good purpose. Absolutely. And um and 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 um <clears throat> Yeah, it all comes down to purpose. And I, so do you want to talk about purpose? I know. Yeah, Yeah, let's talk about (laughs) purpose. Let's talk about purpose, right? Because that's what really matters. Um, Yes. So um, it's interesting on purpose. So um, I had a fascinating conversation with a man named Bob Proctor. He was very focused on human potential. He just died last year and focused on human potential, kind of the generation pre-Tony Robbins. And we were having this conversation and he said, oh, you're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He probably didn't say that. He probably said, oh, you're a Mormon. And I said, yes. And then he said, oh, well, then you have purpose. You know what your purpose is. And I thought that was really interesting. And if you think about it, we do know what our purpose is. I mean, it's to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man and woman. Like we have purpose oozing out of us. And I I think about that prophecy of President Kimball and Sister Dew repeated it. And then Sharon Eubank repeated it. And then President Nelson repeated it, that idea of, and I'm going to you know, see if I can get this right, of President Kimball saying, that, um, what did President Kimball say? He said, much of the major growth of the church will come because the good women of the world will be drawn to the church in large numbers. So the gathering of scattered Israel, and this will happen to the degree that women reflect righteousness and articulateness in their lives and to the degree that we are seen as distinct and different in happy ways from the women of the world. Now, if that isn't purpose, I don't know what is. So going back to what you said just a minute ago, most all of the time everything that we collectively who are listening to and talking to on this podcast what is animating you what you want to do has something to do in some form or another of gathering scattered israel it might be through a business it might be running for church office or church office we don't run for church office it might be running for public office whatever (laughs) it is but in some form you're feeling called to do, just like you were called to be a mother, you're feeling called to do this. That is purpose, which means when you're asking for help from people, it's not for you. You're actually asking to help build the kingdom. Mm-hmm. I agree. Oh, that's such a good perspective. I like that. Because I know for me personally, I don't just want to be busy. I want to be doing something that has purpose and meaning and blesses the lives of other people. I mean, I'm just so driven by that. It seems like many women, like in our church culture that I've spoken to about their direction, midlife, they feel this way. And I think it's as a religious community, we're drawn to that because we do, like you're saying, it's oozing out of us. We know we have a plan of salvation. We have purpose. We have meaning. We have an understanding of the big picture. Therefore, we don't want to be spinning our wheels. Right. And we don't, I think, Mary Alice, I don't think because... It is so much a part of who we are. It is so wired in us in such a deep way. We don't even realize, like, like we have no idea actually how much purpose 
we we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think and women, it, it like pains me honestly when women say, "I'm just a mom." Mm-hmm. I'm like, "You're just a mom." I have friends that go back to work to like escape being a mom because it's way easier. Oh. You know, being a mom is so hard. So hard. Do you remember when uh, Jane Clayson Johnson wrote, I'm just a mother? A great book. Mm -hmm. Great book. A great Mm -hmm. book. Yeah. And I love that she It was also a very seasoned working professional, but that she Mm -hmm. chose to write that book to really shine a light on the importance of motherhood and, and that you can do both well. I mean, she has had a PBS show. She's worked intermittently as she's raised her kids and she's done a good job, but she's also kept the focus on her family and her children as the priority too. So, and I mean, acknowledging just how hard it is to yeah. be a mother. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so hard. Yeah. It's 24 seven, right? Like your kid's up sick at the middle of the night, you're up sick in the middle of the night <laughs> or you're worried about them. They have worries, concerns, fears. High school can be really tricky. You're mm-hmm. up worrying and concerned and scared, right? I mean, we do take on a lot of ownership for our children and their emotions and their outcome. And and I know we're not supposed to do that and be codependent like that, but <laughs> we, we do worry about our kids and we oh, love them. Well, not only worry about them, but absolutely project onto them as well, right? When our children are born, they're going to fulfill all of our unfulfilled hopes and dreams. Yes. I mean, it's, it's, you know, we, we don't like to admit it, but we feel that way. And, and part of allowing them to grow up is to pull that projection back and allow them to live their own lives. And I think to the extent that we allow them to live their own lives, it actually gives us permission to live ours. And, um, you know, I remember someone saying, how do I get my children to dream? And I'm like, you dream, you go do stuff. Because if you go do stuff, then they'll see you doing it. And you're modeling that for them. You just made an incredible point. And that's what I hope everyone just heard that. Because it is really important for parents to model their passion so their kids realize they can do it too. That is so important. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember um, my therapist telling me once, yes, three chairs for therapy. Everybody should have a therapist at some point in life. She said, Whitney, you need to understand your children. They're going to listen to like how your children, what your children do. It's like 10% what you say to them and it is 90% what you do. I'm like, okay, noted. It's true. They are watching. They're watching the behaviors. They're watching what we're doing. It's it's really good and it's it's really neat. Like my kids are like, oh, my mom has this podcast. You know, like they're mm-hmm. they're proud of me. Like they're proud by associate. Like wow, she she did something outside mm-hmm. of you know we left and she kind of reinvented herself. Like yeah. they're you know it's it's good for them to see that modeled for them. And people can do it in they don't have to do it in big ways. You can just go take an art class or you can go, yeah. you know teach a class on something you're good at, you know, because we are good at things. I'm thinking like going back to what you were saying about callings. That's a really good point you were making there because think of the skill set we learn in these callings. We're running organizations. Yes. <laughs> you think yes. of state callings? Yes. Oh my yeah. heck. You're yeah. running you're over yeah. hundreds of people. Yes. In fact, you know, there's this, um, two things are coming up for me. So there's this, I remember, um, there was a woman named Ann Crittenden and she wrote a book called, if you've been a mother, you can do anything. You've got to listen to this quote. She says, what could be a greater transformational act than turning a drooling, demanding baby into a thinking, compassionate, hardworking, law abiding adult. 
Clearly, the parents who accomplish this, who help a child develop his or her fullest potential, are the original transformative leaders. Mm, I love that. Isn't that good? Mm-hmm. So good. Um, you also made me just think of something else when you said your kids were proud of you um, for doing the podcast, Mary Alice. And that is, um, I think a lot about, um, you know, again, how else do, how else can we know what our, our passions are? I think our children, because, you know, if you think about on this planet, who, who has more interest in seeing you succeed on this planet than your children? Like, I mean, even more than your spouse, I think your children like desperately want you to succeed and show up in a, a really powerful way. They absolutely see your underbelly, <clears throat> which means they also can see your, your, your weaknesses, but they want you to succeed. And so another really great clue is to ask your kids, Hey, what do you think I'm good at? And look at what your children are good at, because it's likely that if your children are really good at something, there's a mirror there and you might be good at it too. There's all sorts of clues everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. That's true. Because my daughter actually loves public speaking as well. And uh -huh. so there's a definite common thread there. So, And then my son is actually very creative. And so <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah, that's, that's true. I never thought of it that way. It's like turning the mirror on us. Usually yeah. we're always projecting everything to them. Then they're turning to us like, hey, you can do this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and they all want us to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Okay. So can you just share, I, and you have done different things in your life. You know, you wrote, you've written some books and, mm -hmm. and I've seen you kind of on this path to your own self-development and your own ability to really help people in significant ways. And I'm one of those people you've helped. Mm. And can you share your personal experience or maybe even a defining moment when you discovered renewed purpose and meaning in your life? Yeah. <clears throat> it's such a great question. And I think, so there's a quote that comes to mind that I think is relevant to here, and then I'll, I'll apply it to myself. Um, I remember uh, David Brooks, who's a New York Times columnist, he wrote, he said, most people think that they find a calling and then they, they go after their calling, but more often than not, they find a problem to solve and then the self is gradually constructed in solving the problem. And as I think about my life and I think most people's lives where I felt like I had this redefining moment or renewed purposes. You know, I had, I had gone to work on wall street, started as a secretary because my husband was in school as often happens. Um, and then had become a banker and an equity research analyst and started a fund and with, with Clayton. But I think for me that the, the, the renewed sense of purpose is I thought, oh yeah, I'm going to be an investor. I'm going to be, you know, an equity analyst. And, and yet all along people kept saying to me, you know, you're a really good coach. You're good at developing people. And I was like, nah, I, you know, I don't want to do that because I was naturally good at it. So how could that be valuable? But I do feel like that where I found what I felt like I was supposed to be doing, like that feeling of calling hit me was really in my early fifties, um, where I was like, Oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I can see how this experience and being spotlight coordinator and being an equity research, research analyst and being a mom and 
all of these challenges that I've gone through, having parents that divorced, you know, at a young age, this is what brought me to this place now of I'm here to help develop people inside of organizations and, um, and walk alongside people as they grow and develop. Um, and so that for me was that renewed moment and that realization of like when I was in my thirties, I wanted to figure it out. When I was in my forties, I wanted to figure it out and realizing that there needed to be some sense of patience that would come of not figuring out until I was in my early fifties. And so that to me, I think was really encouraging because I think a lot of women who are listening to this podcast are probably in their 50s or maybe in their 60s and saying, what next? And and the answer I would give is, oh, there's so much. There's so much for us to do. And I take so much um, uh, encouragement from President Nelson being in his 90s. Like, we've got a lot of life ahead of us um, to do the things that we now feel called to do in our in our 50s and in our 60s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. that's interesting. And it's important to be patient with the process. Like you were saying, you were kind of feeling it, but it didn't really manifest to your 50s. Yep, exactly. Yeah, because I think we can be impatient. Like, well, what is it now? We want to change the world now. What are we doing? <laughs> but it's, it's just really honestly, like I know this seems like a cliche, but I mean, it's in the Lord's timing, honestly. I have found that over and over again. Yeah, Mary Alice, I agree. I mean, I remember talking to a mentor probably in my 30s and I was like, I want to say something, you know, and and do something. And she kept saying, just be patient, be patient. And I, I do think that there is some element of of that trusting the process because it's partly through the life that we've lived that we actually have something to say and some way to contribute. And also... I think sometimes, you know, that if, if things happen too fast and too quickly, we're not really ready. We're not equipped emotionally to handle it. And so, like you said, the Lord knows us and he, he will allow us to, you know, if we're living close to the spirit, he will help us accomplish what he wants us to accomplish in this life. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. And even just putting it out there too, like verbalizing what it is you want, you know, with the podcast and the women's health work that I do, um, I put it out there. Like I, mm-hmm. I express my concerns to friends. I, I let them know what I was concerned about and what I hope to happen. And then opportunities by just voicing it kind of came to me through those people I was voicing it to. They're like, well, how about you do this? Or how uh-huh. about you do this? Or I know someone in this. Why don't I connect to you? I mean, if you have to verbalize it and so people know what it is you're even thinking about. And then sometimes the opportunity comes that way. Yeah. I love that. I love a dream aloud, a dream set aloud comes alive. And because there's actual, I mean, if you think about our words, those are sound waves. I mean, there's something tangible and it allows people, um, to, to pick up on that and, and to respond to it and, and to help and they want to help. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I mean, when people come to me and I can help them, I'll totally help them. Mm-hmm. You know, if I have the bandwidth and I'm able to, and I have the resources, why wouldn't I help them? Right. I mean, and also I'm thinking too, you know, one advantage to being in this season of our lives, midlife, is that we have a lot of experience behind us that adds value to what we're doing. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's, there, there, you know, again, if you've been a mother, you can do pretty much anything. Like, and I think, you know, back to the, your question you asked earlier of being able to know what to do is 
not only look at your church callings, but look at, you know, what you've done in terms of helping your children develop and, and what volunteer activities you've been in and look at what all those transferable skills are. I mean, there is a whole array of, of skills, robust skills that you have. Mm-hmm. I feel like in our church, we breed public speakers. Yes, I we mean, do. <laughs> these kids in primary are getting up and giving talks in front of like, you know, 100 little primary kids. And then when they're 12, they're talking in front of a whole congregation. Yeah. I mean, you know amazing. what else? You know what else we breed, Mary Alice, is we breed, um, we breed leaders. Um, you know, if you look at, um, like you said, Relief Society presidents, young women's presidents, et cetera, and we, we breed people who are um, management thinkers because we're from a very young age, we are taught how to manage and how to think about manage and how to rally people and how to galvanize people. And we're taught in metaphors. I mean, there's all sorts of training that we get by virtue of being members of our church that again, we have no, we, we don't really comprehend how valuable it is. That is so true. It was so funny when Jess was back at business school in Boston, um, I was going to put together like a dinner with like four couples or something and just have them over to our house in Wellesley and just going to throw it together. And I said, well, why don't you come over tonight? And they're like, how are you putting all this together? (laughs) Eight people last minute, like a couple hours. Like what? I mean, I thought, gosh, I ran the whole activities committee for three years for 300 people. I can do this. (laughs) I didn't even think about it. Exactly. Thank you. Case in point. Yeah. She was like blown away. I'm like, this is eight people. This is nothing. I got this. I'm going to run by Whole Foods on the way home. I've got some folding tables and chairs. It's fine. So, um, but the one thing I was also thinking about too, is now that I'm older and I think, you know, many of these women listening now are in this same stage of life. Um, the concept of legacy comes into play. And I start thinking about, and I think that's why I'm so much more purpose-driven. I want to leave a legacy for my kids uh-huh. that has impact. Yeah. How important do you see that as being in this midlife? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, the other day I was having a conversation with someone around li- midlife and we're like, how old is midlife anyway? And, you know, they looked it up and the definition is 40 to 60. And for me, I guess when I think about legacy, it feels a little early to be thinking about legacy when you're 40. But I do think that the legacy comes once we figured out what we're called to do. And so for us as women in the church, I think, and, and I think it can come, there's two parts of it. So there's the sense of calling around motherhood and parenting and, and this is a little bit tough because our children are ultimately free agents. Um, but I think, you know, the legacy then comes in the sense of, you know, did we feel like we were the parents we tried to be that we've improved as parents as we've gotten older, which goes back to that, that Harbor aspect. But I think that the ship piece, which goes also to legacy is where we do cast about and we're like, what am I supposed to be doing? I can feel it. There's something, you know, like that prophecy of president Kimball, I'm, I'm supposed to help fulfill this. And I think we start to get a sense of that legacy by what we're hearing from others or our calling, which then goes to legacy um, of getting that feedback from other people. But then also really, you know, we have this wonderful gift and it's called revelation and God will confirm to us that we are doing what he wants us to be doing. Um, he'll confirm it in those quiet moments as we, you know, make, make a move to make a phone call or to do something slightly different, but he'll also confirm it in priesthood blessings where we can really get a very 
strong sense. I know I have felt this way, that I feel like I'm absolutely on the path that Heavenly Father wants me to be on. Lots of casting about, but I do now feel like I'm on that path. And that is one of the beautiful, beautiful gifts that we have as members of the church is that we can have that sense of we're on the path that we're supposed to be on, which means that we will in fact have the legacy that we wanted to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it is um, driven by the Lord. I feel like if we're willing and we're open and we're in tune with the spirit, we will be led to where we need to be when. So, because so many of the things I'm doing aren't, there weren't goals I had, like I'm going to do the podcast and I'm going to have this reach and this is what I'm going to do. I didn't have any of those goals. Mm-hmm. I just had the, I, you know, I was sharing my experience with my son coming home early from a mission with a friend and she was taking a communications class at like the local community college here, Saddleback. She's like, well, I have this podcast class and maybe we could do a fake podcast about this. And your son <laughs> coming home, like, oh, that sounds interesting because she knew I was struggling with it in this church culture. And then that's what started it. I'm like, hey, we did wow. this. I'm like, why can't this be real? This could be a resource for people that helps them. Uh. And that's where it launched. It's not like I had that goal to do that, but oh. I you know, I was struggling with it and she brought it to my attention and created the opportunity for me. And then that opportunity continued for four years, you know? Yeah. It's kind of neat how that works. Like the Lord, if you're open, he'll just kind of use you how he needs you. And it's interesting how that evolves. Yeah. I love that. And that goes back to the quote of about how you find a problem and then yourself is gradually constructed in the solving of the problem. Like you, you had that challenge with your with your husband, with your son coming home from his mission early, your friend saying, hey, here's how you could solve this. And now this self of interviewing has been constructed in the solving of that problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. That's interesting how that works. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time. I loved everything we talked about. I feel like it was definitely inspired in what we were talking about and and that we as women in the church are inspired and we will be led to do things in the Lord's timing and we can rely on that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And remember, if you've been a mother, you can do anything. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time today, Whitney. I loved it. Thank you, Mary Alice. Thank you for listening to the What Now podcast. Please share this episode with family, friends, and anyone you think it might help. Just click on that share button wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed the podcast, please take a minute to leave a positive rating and written review, which really allows these important messages to help more people. If you're on Instagram, follow us at Podcast What Now for inspirational messages and highlights from our past and present podcasts. We never say goodbye. We say what now. This has been a What Now podcast production.